Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. My name is Simon Kingston. I'm General Secretary of SPCK. Um, and uh, today we've been lucky enough to have uh, our two conversationalists join in both the uh, judging and the awarding of the Michael Ramsey Prize for Theological Writing. So that's been something which has been bringing them together earlier on. One of the wonderful things about the Hay Festival is the way it brings disparate people together um, uh, to share in their love of literature and of reading. Uh, in the world of literature, obviously, they don't come bigger than Shakespeare. Um, and so we're particularly privileged to have today the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Williams. Some of you will have heard him uh, a couple of years ago talking about Dostoevsky, and you will realize how prolific his knowledge is of, of literature, and um, uh, he's diseased with the reading bug. Um, <laughs> and being blessed with a tremendous memory, there's an awful lot in there. Um, and to talk to him, I don't have to introduce Simon Russell Beale, um, our finest Shakespearean actor, and somebody... <laughs> our finest Shakespearean actor, and, and somebody who started as a student of English literature, um, and so has um, a, a love of Shakespeare from the theoretical and the practical, and together we're going to have the opportunity to overhear their conversation. At the end, we'll have a chance for some questions. But first, let's just eavesdrop. Thank you. Thank you. We thought we might start by saying what we're not going to talk about. And we're not really going to be discussing very much the question of what Shakespeare's actual religious beliefs were, about which there's plenty of argument. We're not even going to discuss precisely how he depicts religion in the plays. There are religious characters in the plays. There are Machiavellian cardinals, eccentric friars, and I'm afraid idiot vicars. <laughs> Shakespeare, I think, can claim some of the credit for inventing the idiot vicar as an English <laughs> literary uh, convention. You could meet some of his vicars in P.G. Woodhouse. But he also assumes, as anybody might have done at that time, that people pray. And one of the interesting things that is one way into the sort of thing we like to talk about is watching what happens in Shakespeare when some of his characters pray. Shakespeare, and we'll come back to this, is somebody deeply preoccupied with the lies we tell ourselves, with self-deception. He's fascinated both dramatically and theoretically by what it is you say when you talk by yourself or to yourself. And some of the prayers are a way of seeing what you wouldn't otherwise see. Make what you will of Henry V's prayer on the eve of battle, but you have at least seen something of what you don't otherwise see in that, dare I say, pretty wooden character. Suddenly, a self-awareness <laughs> <laughs> a self-awareness comes through, which makes you read or hear everything else rather differently. And then there's Claudius. 
Claudius, who is surprised by Hamlet at his prayers. Hamlet won't kill him because he doesn't want to send him to heaven while he's praying. And the irony is, of course, that Claudius is aware, as he prays, of the fact that he's not really praying at all. Or is he? Is his awareness of the impotence of the prayer itself a kind of repentance? But there's something going on there that, again, you don't see elsewhere. And Simon, you might like to the, think um, a bit about Claudius. Because uh, you've thrown about 100 balls in the air in um, uh, 30 seconds. The, um, and we're not going to talk about institutionalised religion, but uh, can I just talk about, a bit about Hamlet? Because when I, um, when I did it, <clears throat> um, I hate actors who say that, but, then, but when I did it, there was a review that said, um, oh, Hamlet is the least uh, Christian play that this critic knew. I can't actually remember who the critic was. But... Um, I remember because our production was extremely steeped in uh, religious culture. Um, and I'd seen a lot of productions which were done in sort of, um, became very fashionable to do the play set in atheistic totalitarian states for very good reasons. You know, there's a whole thread of espionage and spying and, and autocratic rule that works very well in that. And in fact, as we know, in Eastern Europe, the play became something of a symbol for the fight against uh, despotism. Um, especially in Romania. Um, but I felt at the time of doing it that I wanted to, to have a Christian culture around the play because I disagree with the critic in question, but I think it's actually one of the most specifically Christian plays that he wrote. And um, it, it sets a particular series of problems. One of the most specific is the, is the prayer with Claudius. Um, the Now Might I Do It, Pat, one of Tom Stoppard's best jokes uh, in Jumpers. His tortoise is called Pat. Um, uh, so <laughs> now Might I Do It, Pat. Um, uh, that's quite a specific uh, localised problem for Hamlet and indeed for Claudius. But it's, it raises a, a whole series of questions. And he, he, he seems to, I don't know whether you agree, Rowan, he seems to be playing a lot of games with contemporary religious culture. And... Uh, I don't know how many of you, of you here would agree with that, but it seems to me not accidental that Hamlet goes to Wittenberg. It's a particular choice of university that has a, a particular resonance. He gets a visit from his father. Um, and you might be able to correct me this. I I'm not quite sure whether Wittenberg would have taught a Protestant theology or a Catholic theology at that time, but he gets a visit from his father who's just been in who is in purgatory. Um, and he also, at the end of seeing his father, he says to his fellow student, Wittenberg student, and I always thought it was a rather significant line, a very famous line, um, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Um, he then uh, has to cope with a revenge uh, commission. So he's challenging, Hamlet is consciously challenging a, reven a revenge culture that was that was based on a, a, a New Testament stroke, Old Testament um, set of values, Old Testament stroke, New Testament set of values. Um, and then, miraculously, he has that gap when he goes away. And I've always thought, I'm not quite sure whether Shakespeare missed a trick or whether it's a piece of brilliant dramaturgy, that he has something happens to him when he goes to England. And he comes back a different man, and we have 
and this is the real difficulty for the actor playing Hamlet, we then have a, him in, in a philosophical, stroke religious state of mind, which you have to define as an actor, but which, is, which Shakespeare doesn't give you much information about. It seems to be like fatalism. There's the, the great speech, if it be now, it is not to come, if it be not to come, it will be now. Uh, the readiness is all let be. Uh, but we also know he's murdered somebody or commissioned the murder of somebody. So I don't know about you. I don't know where you, where you, whether you could help me with the theology of that because I find that quite a deliberate cocktail to present in front of an audience of 1,600, I would say. It's, it's a very difficult one because I think where he ends up is almost a sort of stoic position rather than a, Fatalist. a religious or, one. Yes. Um, which may be something to do with the fact that he has indeed internalized the, the fact that he's murdered someone, um, that he's known guilt, that he doesn't want to address that guilt in the conventional religious way, and he settles with that rather grim, stoic solution. You see, you use the word grim. What I... I rather did a sort of double think on this one because I refused to admit that he'd ordered the death of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So I sort of blocked that from my mind because I had a desire for him to be the sweet prince who would, in the end, say, let be with a sense of relief and a sense of calm. Um, what that does, unfortunately, is not only ignore the death of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but it also makes the... And, but I do think this has a valid, validity it makes the final deaths in Hamlet, this awful thing to say, almost irrelevant. Yeah. And you get that great bloodbath at the end. You think, well, they could all die. They could none of them die. It makes no difference somehow to the, to the mm. philosophical trajectory of the piece, mm. um, that somehow we've, we've gone beyond, mm. beyond that. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the stoic, whether it's a grim stoicism or, or whether it's... Um, It's a, it's Buddhist, flight, a Buddhist, flight, Buddhist. It's, it's a flight above. It's a flight mm. above that. Mm. And I instinctively wanted it to be a, a flight above that, but pa perhaps that's sentimental. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, my my instinct is is to go for the grim there, partly because partly because of all the background you've talked about, where we've seen Hamlet, if you like, studying Protestant theology at Wittenberg, and it would have been, In I guess, it's right. Luther's university. He comes back something knocks that certainty completely sideways in the visitation from query purgatory. Um, and yes, it is, but a ghost on his way to sanctification wouldn't necessarily want to expand quite so largely on the duties of revenge, you might think. Um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite know what to do with that. He deliberately tries to stop Claudius going to heaven. Um, it's as if all the conventional lines are jammed. It, it's like too many messages coming into the, the call center. And then, as you say, something happens. He does take a decision about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And on the far side of that, what's left, I think something quite bleak. Now, what interests me about that in Hamlet as a whole is, yes, it's certainly all about religious, religious themes. But the resolution is a very strikingly post-Christian one in some ways, which I wouldn't say about Lear, for instance, uh -huh. although people prefer Well, it's interesting it. that you've just sparked a thought in my head because there are certain things that I feel I can say safely about Shakespeare as a man. 
one of which I'm absolutely, I'm sure a lot of you would agree with this. He must have felt jealousy, and we'll get mm -hmm. on to yeah. jealous characters later. He must surely have felt that. I know he did the whole range, except for mothers, he's not very good at, but um, he did the whole range of human experience. Um, but jealousy, he seems to have a particular interest in. He also has a particular interest in daughters. Fa fathers and daughters. Fathers and daughters. Mm -hmm. So that you get the sense that, that that was something he had a personal investment in. Now, I wonder, it's just interesting, because Rowan just asked me before he came on, we are going to get onto it. No, before he came, I said, do you think he was Catholic? I said, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. Um, uh, <laughs> but if, if Hamlet were a jammed play, that's a very interesting idea, isn't it? Because, actually, I did answer it, really. I, I said, I've, I've no idea, but it can't have been a simple... I don't think it could have been a simple one or other, because it, it cannot have been at that period that people suddenly went, oh, right, I'm Church of England now. Um, <laughs> fine, I'm not going to believe in purgatory, or I'm only going to believe in two sacraments, or whatever. Um, so, perhaps he was jammed. Hmm. I, I mean, perhaps that was that the part of the self-portrait of the play is that. I, I think that, that has something to say about a, a complicated play like Measure for Measure, as well, where he's not either propagandizing for a particular confessional point of view, or satirizing. You can play Measure for Measure, I think, rather glibly either way, but actually... It's another kind of tangle. It's another way in which some conventional religious identities just collide and freeze. And at the end of Measure for Measure, what makes it such a complicated play is that the resolution, as I think as in Hamlet, leaves nobody in a very good place. Um, unfinished business, unwanted forgiveness. You know, Angelo would prefer to be dead than to be forgiven. And that leaves, I think, on the horizon of Measure for Measure, a sort of Christian stroke spiritual intuition that can never quite embody itself. So it's Isabella who says to Angelo, all the souls that were were forfeit once, and he that might the vantage best have took found out the remedy, which is one of the most extraordinary summaries of Christian doctrine in the whole of English literature, never mind Shakespeare. And that kind of hangs over the surface, and at the end, Who's found out the remedy? Well, not the Duke, not the characters, and yet there it is, a sort of ungrasped possibility. But we were talking earlier about forgiveness wanted and unwanted, yes. and what happens when forgiveness is offered and not received. Well, yes, um, that's another strand. I mean, the, the most obvious example in my head is the end of The Tempest, when yeah. Uh, Prospero <clears throat> offers forgiveness to his brother and his brother doesn't speak and of course that's, a, that's again an open a blank page for the actor to fill in but it seems when uh, I did it, um, the, <laughs> it, it I found that a fascinating idea about, about uh, what happens if somebody doesn't want forgiveness because it becomes it becomes again a jam it becomes a, a log jam. The, actually, the more we're talking about this, this jam idea, because I, I, so many of his plays end up like that. I mean, can I talk a bit about Iago? Why don't you? <laughs> because because this goes back to what you mentioned earlier about um, soliloquies. Uh -huh. um, when you do a soliloquy, I was told by a very good director that what you do a very good way of doing them is to cast the audience in a role. So if you're doing Richard III, 
you might, these are the choices I made, I'll tell you them, you might say, okay, I'm the leader of the gang. So what you can say before the Lady Anne scene is to say, you'll never guess what I'm going to do now. I'm uh, me, ugly that I, though I am, I'm now going to, and murderer though I am, I'm now going to seduce this woman. And at the end of the scene, he goes, see? <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's fantastic, that's leader of the gang. Um, Hamlet, I think quite simply, sort of wants a friend, really. Um, it's, it's also very interesting to, to note when um, characters stop soliloquizing because it's usually for a, a quite specific reason. And for instance, Richard III stops soliloquizing except for one soliloquy before the battle at the end. Once he gets crowned, once he gets what he wants. And there's a, a marvelous irony that I think he, he no longer feels confident to be the leader of the gang, funnily enough. Um, Hamlet stops soliloquizing, and this is why I think it's not necessarily grim. Uh, he stops soliloquizing after his trip back from England, which is when he doesn't want, doesn't need any friends anymore. Um, I think that's that's stoic again. But, I mean. stoic. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Hamlet is. I mean, the whole of Hamlet is, uh, on a personal level, is is about him being betrayed by a series of friends, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And family. Mm -hmm. yep. It's it's one long series, probably the most damaging of which. Uh, well, probably it's Gertrude, actually, but Ophelia is pretty damaging as well. So the audience, who's been his constant friend, he suddenly goes, I, actually, I don't need you anymore. I've gone somewhere where you can't follow, perhaps. Um, Iago is uh, Macbeth, Macbeth slightly different in his soliloquizing, I think, because he becomes so internalized. But Iago is fascinating because he's the only person I know, <coughs> and correct me somewhere if I'm wrong, who lies in soliloquy. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about people who deceive themselves, he makes a quite deliberate choice when he talks to the audience of saying, I'll give you a series of reasons for what I'm doing, but I couldn't give a damn whether you believe them or not. And uh, I'll give you five, okay? And it's particularly foul because it's the breaking of a pact between the audience and the actor. And I think that's part of his power. And I think he, he, he's the only character who has absolutely no understanding of love. Um, and I think is the only character who quite genuinely, in theological terms, we can say is in hell in hell now. Mm. Um, and I, um, he ends with the, um, as a lot of you will know, it ends with the very chilling words um, when Othello says, uh, why did you do what you did? And he goes, what you know, you know. I, I, I don't know what that means. There's something like the sounding of a very deep bell on that line, which is not, which is not what appears on the surface of the line. I think, I think that, that's absolutely right, that Iago is, in that sense, a soul in hell, because he, he could not receive absolution if it were offered, in a sense. He wouldn't know what it meant. It's not just a matter of refusing forgiveness out of shame or humiliation like Angelo's. What would forgiveness mean? Who knows? Who knows? He's not there. But thinking of soliloquies in hell, um, Macbeth goes on soliloquizing, doesn't he? Is he in hell? Because there's, there's some sense in which 
after Macbeth says, you know, I could not say amen. Oh, he's stuck in, stuck in my throat. He's choked. He's literally choked. He can't move. And from that point on, he's sort of going round and round in circles, trying to find words for what he can't rationalize or justify to himself. Is that, is that, is that hell? Too, too, too strat. The only decent essay I wrote at university was about Macbeth. So, although I wasn't myself a very good Macbeth, I have a particular affection for the play. And I think, I, I think he's unique amongst um, Shakespearean tragic heroes because he goes to a place where his own attitude to his own death is, is, is unique. He has no desire to die at the same time he wants to die. And I think that's um, a very, very odd position for a Lear to find himself in, or a Hamlet, or a Othello to find himself in. So it's, it, it's not where they would end up. Um, Macbeth does, there's two things about Macbeth that I think are fascinating, well, more than that, but um, the first is that he becomes, you talk about standing still, his life reduces him to absolute stasis. Yeah. And this is linked in with children too. Um, can I do a quick one? This is about Iago again. Because children, <laughs> it's interesting about Shakespeare's source material, um, and I've never had to say this really in public, it's, it's Cynthia, uh, Hecatomythi. And it's a series of short stories, um, one of which is the Othello story, Desdemona story. But Iago in that is uh, rather glamorous, uh, extremely handsome, uh, sexually active, sort of Richard III-ish, not that Richard III is handsome, but that sort of figure sexy, uh, charismatic. Uh, he's also got a child. Hmm. And uh, it's significant that Shakespeare decides to get rid of the child uh, when he wrote his version of Othello. Um, Amelia and Iago, as far as we know, are childless. Anyway, uh, the Macbeths famously are childless. Um, he ends up in a, in a, in a world without children. Um, because he then gets to a stage we can't look at the past because mm -hmm. that's where a dead child is, a yep. dead king, yep. uh, a marriage that suffered a trauma that he thought he could cure, I think, yep. by, by killing the king and becoming king. In the future, he can't, he can't have an heir. He doesn't want any children in Scotland, basically. Yep. We see a tiny microcosm of that with the, death of the Macduff children. And he ends up centred, I suppose, on the tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow speech, but he ends up in, as you say, in that circular, <laughs> non-productive... It's, it's where Iago is as well, but Iago is so busy that he can disguise it. Macbeth literally... Um, literally cannot move, I don't think. Um, there was a, a... Some of you have heard, heard me speak, I'm sure, before, but... but uh, at university, I saw a play by Athol Fugard called Statements After an Arrest Under the Immorality Act. And uh, Tilda Swinton, as a student, was playing this woman whose uh, uh, lover had been taken away under the Immorality Act because he was a different skin colour. And she was left on stage naked, and she said, I've always remembered it, um, she said, if I move, if I move an inch then the full horror of what's happened to me will begin to roll. And I think Macbeth, Macbeth is doing it. Yes. I think yes. he's... There's also a description in um, 
um, Solzhenitsyn's um, first circle of Stalin mm. um, in his in his ten foot wall room in the Kremlin in a tiny bed, <clears throat> not moving. And I think that's what happens to Macbeth. He becomes he becomes um, paralysed. That's right. And and a, a lot has been written about the imagery of blood-stained children in Macbeth. But for me, one, one of the great images in it is pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast. Yeah. Because that extinction of the future, the murdering of the children, that's the murdering of the possibility of pity. Forgiveness, again, any drama that looks towards forgiveness has got to find ways into the future, ways of, well, ways of recovering the dead child, which is onto yeah. Shakespeare's late plays, late where plays. that's exactly what happens again and again, as though he can't stop writing about the loss of children and what it might mean somehow, incredibly, magically, absurdly, to recover that. Yeah. They're, they're absurd plays, the late plays. To just mention that, that particular image, I, I, it's, it's phantasmagoric, that image. I mean, a, a naked newborn babe striding the blast, yes. he must be huge. Yes, yes. I had, this, I, when I, I had this image of this enormous baby. Yes. Zooming down um, the sky, actually. There's a, there's a cartoon, there's a, one of those... Cartoon, well, I can't think of a, an animated film that has one of those sort of grotesque babies in it. Um, but of all, the, of all the things to pick a baby, yeah. you think, wow. And then you turn it into something... Um, sort of, the, other, the other thing I meant to say about Macbeth is that, bizarrely, he finds his voice. Mm -hmm. And this is... We will get onto the late plays, but it links, it links back to um, uh, Iago, is that, is that uh, his best wife says at one point, I, I'm, I don't understand what you're saying. And yes. It's after a particularly lyrical passage yes. that he's done. And there's something uh, that he finds fulfilling about what he's done. You know, this is a famously silent man. He, he barely speaks in the first act except for in soliloquies. He doesn't talk yeah. to other people. And then suddenly he murders the king and out comes, out comes this stuff. And there's something uh, temporarily enjoyable about it. And I think part of what Iago is saying to Othello is you enjoyed that, didn't you? You, you indulged something in the black side of your soul that was actually momentarily pleasurable. Does that um, make sense? Just, yeah, absolutely. Just hanging on to the Macbeth thing for a moment. Um, I think that that particular exchange, when Lady Macbeth doesn't understand, and he, as it were, discovers he doesn't need her to understand. <laughs> the innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou approve the deed. One of the most chilling lines, yeah. I think, in, yeah. in Macbeth, because he's saying, actually, I don't need you for stimulation and courage and sexual satisfaction anymore. What I've done is, is what sustains me well, in a horrible way. Um, um, Ladies ill. 
I always think when people feel unwell in theatre, they should stop. Because <laughs> the last thing you want to do is do it quietly. I think. Um, the uh, companionship, um, there's a scene in Othello when um, Iago um, reduces Othello to a fit, mm. do you remember? Mm. And they start completing each other's sentences. It's very odd. And I think uh, you talk about companionship, uh, Iago certainly doesn't need Amelia. And as you say, Macbeth doesn't need Lady Macbeth. But Iago, oddly, this is also going back to what you know you know, I, th I think he and Othello become the same organism. It's, it's, it's an indulgence. It's an indulgence yeah. in the very worst that one can do and feel. Mm. Mm. And, you know, so. mm. For the late plays, the late right, plays. let's get to something <laughs> redemptive. <laughs> mm. um, again, I think this is, this is a moment when you can see a peek into Shakespeare's biography. Um, I don't know what children meant to him, but something, something grew in his life whereby they became... It's not the children of the first 18 sonnets. It's not, oh, mm -hmm. I better breed somebody who's exactly like me. Um, but it's to do with a love, a love being invested your love being invested in something in the future, I think. I yes, think that's probably yes. what it's about. Um, and, and a future being given back when you assume there wasn't one, and it's not the future you'd have chosen or planned, but it's, it's happening. Perishes, I think, which I've, when I saw it again recently, the first time in about 20 years, I was more moved than I'd ever expected to be because I'd, I'd forgotten just how deeply it's a kind of reworking of Lear with, with another kind of conclusion. And part of that obsessional going over the, the lost daughter theme. And, yeah. and, and it comes out even more than in Lear, the pure grace of recovery, the relationship you thought had been lost forever, sacrificed forever, the relationship which you have sacrificed for your own ego or whatever in Lear, and it's given back. And it's anarchic, it's, it's unrealistic, and yet just colossally powerful, I think. Explain to me the theology of the end of Winter's Tale. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because oh, when oh, I was yes, doing it, there was all that stuff about, that I was reading about grace. Yes. Um, which again is, is that, a, is that a peculiarly Catholic thing, or is that a, a, a Protestant? Not peculiarly story? Catholic. I think the notion of anarchic, causeless grace is much more Protestant. You, you have no idea why this happens or how it happens, it just happens. And something like that is going on at the end of The Winter's Tale because Leontes, well, he's repented in a sense in that he's made his life hellish yeah. in the intervening period. There's no way of bringing back the dead son and again, you see, he, he muddies the waters, doesn't he? Yeah. Because the dead son yeah. is always there. Always yeah. there. Yeah. And I think ought to be somehow a, a presence, I don't know how you do it theatrically, at the end. Because again, it's not a, a glib, all the ends tied up conclusion. But somehow in, into all this comes 
that, that extraordinary moment of what you thought was stasis, the statue, actually moving. Things move. I think that's how grace works at the end of The Winter's Tale. Not um, it's all forgotten and forgiven, not it was okay after all, but things move. Um, things unfree. It is required you do awake your faith, that yes, famous line. Yes, I mean, yes. is that, a, is that um, again, a theological requirement? It, it, yeah. To Paulina, it seems to be a requirement, doesn't it? That mm. he can't possibly see Hermione until, until, his faith, he's, until he's got faith. Until so, he's, he's let go of something and imagined that there might be a movement. Right. Which Macbeth, of course, can't do. Yeah, or Iago. Or yeah. Iago. Mm. Yeah. I always found, I have to confess to you, I, I, I think Winterstell is possibly one of the most beautiful, miracle of a last scene. And... Um, a friend of mine said, you know, Shakespeare always has the tingle factor. If he's, you know, if you do it properly, he's got the tingle factor. And if there's any scene in the whole of the canon that, that has the tingle factor, it's that last scene of Winter's Tale. But it does worry me, because I'm not quite sure what Shakespeare's trying to say here, because, because it can't happen. <laughs> I think that's... Yeah. I, I, it, it really... It bugged me throughout the whole time of playing it that I thought... Yeah, it'd be lovely if you did something, something terrible and, and you could be forgiven and know that you're forgiven. And, um, I mean, oddly enough, actually, when we did it, uh, Hermione refused to give me her hand, which I'm not sure is right, actually. I, I, think in, I think actually what Shakespeare was writing was a full reconciliation. But there's something... I, I, I did, couldn't decide whether it was a, um, a sleight of hand on Shakespeare's part so that we all go at the end, oh, isn't that marvellous? But don't think too hard about it, because actually, this can't happen. Or am I being too literal? No, I, th I think that connects a bit with what I meant by saying there's, there's an anarchy about the late plays, in all, all sorts of ways. The, the anarchy of the plots, which are, which are dreadful. <laughs> Simply, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're like, like soap opera plots, sort of improvised, almost scene by scene, and it gets more and more complicated, and at the end you have to have some extraordinary cutting of the knots. But I think what, what it comes down to in The Winter's Tale is, no, th of course it can't happen, but what if there were a future for someone as guilty as Leontes? What if? It would feel like this. It would feel like a statue coming to life. It would feel like the daughter coming back from exile. It would feel like dot, dot, dot. Um, and I suspect that's what he's pushing us into. Not, as I say, not a happy ending, but, you know, what, for goodness sake, what do Leontes and Hermione say to each other that night after dinner? Well, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 16 years ago. Um, mm. I, I, I wonder whether part of the Tingle Factory is to do with the fact that it's... It, it plums into a very, uh, perhaps I'm displaying too much of my own psyche here, but it plums into the, a very fundamental human need of being able, of being forgiven. Yes. Um, of being able to say the past is quite genuinely wiped clean. And I, I wonder whether that's, um, that's a fundamental human desire. It, it is, but actually, I think what Shakespeare is refusing to do at the end of The Winter's Tale is to wipe it clean. It's past, but it's real. 
Hermione is the one to whom these things have been done. She's the one whose son has been brought to his death by the father. That's not going to go away, but it doesn't stand still. And I think she famously doesn't talk to her, of course. Of course. Only talks to Perdita. Yeah, yeah. But mm, something moves. And I think in Cymbeline as well, another um, ludicrous and deeply moving ending. Pardon's the word for all. That's where you've got to. And I remember Mark Rylance once saying that um, the thing about Cymbeline was it's the only one of the so-called Roman plays that was really fully set in sort of Christian period. You wouldn't know it, but something yeah. in the tectonic plates has shifted. And the gods by crosses lead us in Cymbeline. You suddenly think, hang about. Something is um, leaking into the language here about absolution, about movement, which is not, as I say, wiping clean, but is unfreezing. Maybe absolution is that unfreezing. We talked about the stasis of Macbeth or Iago, and I would say a kind of stasis, even in Hamlet at the end, and then something moves. And I, I suppose that's why, personally, I find Lear more in tune with that, that thought about absolution than the others, because although you know, he dies, but he's moved by that time. Yeah. It's okay for him to die because he's moved. Yeah. And the, again, the relationship that he thought he had wrecked is almost magically, not as magically as in Pericles or whatever, given back. And after that, so to speak, it's okay to die. That's interesting because I suppose at the end of Othello, you, you're not quite sure whether, you, whether the overarching egotism of Othello mm. still hasn't gone. And I, I mean, I, I, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a, again a, a sleight of hand on Shakespeare, a brilliant sleight of hand, because actually in performance, I think most people are tremendously moved by those mm. last scenes. Mm. It's only in retrospect that you go, hang on, he talked a lot about himself, yes. didn't he? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but, mm. but, but I, I agree with you that perhaps Lear is the only, I've, I don't know, I only near, know Lear from another perspective, which is from Edgar, which actually, we haven't got time to talk about Edgar, but that's a very interesting, uh, a part that I was, I, I didn't do very well. Um, but I, I knew what I wanted to do, and it is, that's an extraordinary figure of, of, I would say probably, Christian, uh, a, a Christian figure, actually, of um, a person who facilitates uh, another person's learning. And, yes. and the weird thing is that we never know who he is. That's, that's why it's such a, a difficult part, because I actually don't know who he is. Do we need to open up? Yeah, well, unless you want a quick word about much ado about nothing. Got much before, I know you wanted to talk about Benedict. <laughs> I'm talking about tragedy a lot. There is. Well, there are other places. I mean, wanted to mention much, much ado about nothing. Is that I think I, it is. It is so. E it's so easy, because I'm in the fascination of Shakespeare to, to talk about some big things and and you know redemption and grace and hell and. And much ado about nothing, I think Benedict is the bravest man that he ever wrote. And I just uh, I always want to say that, because also the other thing about Benedict is that Beatrice is so enchanting, and mm. Benedict is always seen as a bit of a twit, and, and uh, <laughs> he's clever, and he's yeah. sharp, but he's a twit. He doesn't understand women, and, you know... Uh, 
But it's the most, it's the most sexually segregated play that he wrote. It's very interesting. When, when we rehearsed it, I literally got to the first performance and I hadn't met half the women in the company, well, any of the women in the company, except for Zoe Wanamaker, who was playing Beatrice. <coughs> Unheard of. I mean, literally the men and the women are completely separated. And then, and, and, and very carefully at the beginning of the play, it's a couple of mentions of the fact that Benedict doesn't like dueling. Just thrown away. He does that extraordinary thing of changing camp. It's the most amazing thing to do when you're on stage because you're in the chapel, Hero's been um, abandoned at the altar. They've had their big family row. The men have all stormed off in a great sort of macho cloud. And Benedict remains, does that possibly the best love scene that Shakespeare ever wrote in six lines. I mean, just amazing piece of writing says he loves Beatrice, Beatrice says he loves him, then she says, kill Claudio, and you suddenly realise that, uh, that Benedict has, yes, switched sides, and he will now go off and do something he absolutely hates, which is challenge his best friend to a duel. And I think it's it, profoundly moving, and it's profoundly moving on an absolutely human level, mm. because it's the one play where I don't think, I mean, I know he does a death trick, but it's sort of, it's sort of within the realms of possibility. Whereas at the end of Twelfth Night, he plays he plays a magic trick, doesn't he? At the end of Comedy of Errors, he plays a magic trick. The late plays, that, that shimmer that he does, which, however you explain it, is still magical. Um, in, in Much Ado About It, it's, it's sort of believable. You could just it's about believable. believable. It's, it's uh, two grown-up people. That's how I think it's two grown-up com people. Coming to a prosaic but deeply ethical, deeply transforming relationship. It's, in that sense, it's more about marriage, I think, than almost any of the other mm. romantic comedies. But you say prosaic, the sex will be marvellous. Yeah. I tell you yeah, that. They really will. You know, they'll have a, a fantastic... <laughs> Claudio and Hero, on the other hand. <laughs> Don't wish them that. well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, straight to relate, I think. At <laughs> 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 the point to interrupt. <laughs> 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 Now we have some time for questions. May I just ask, please, um, will you ask, can you keep them brief so we get uh, maximum time for a number of questions and, and answers in between? So please make your questions as short as you can. Um, now, who would like to ask the first question? If you raise your hand, the microphone will come in your direction. Somebody there, Simon. All right, yes. Down here in the front, can we have a microphone here, please? Right in the front. Thank you. It's on, it. it's on its way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Shakespeare embodies humanity. He expresses humanity. That includes religion and philosophy. But I don't know that you can narrowly define him. You could call him a humanist. I don't think, but you'd agree with me, that you can say that he's a Catholic humanist or that he's a Protestant humanist, or maybe that you can even say that he's a Christian humanist. Do you agree? <laughs> About 85%, I think. Um, I don't think it tells you a great deal about what matters in Shakespeare to settle whether he was a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever. I think, for what it's worth, he probably has a Catholic background and a lot of Catholic friends <coughs> and associates. 
that imagery, that world is very familiar to him. He uses it a lot, as in Hamlet. Um, the extent to which I want to call him a Christian is not, I think, trying to um, kidnap him for the, the tribal trophy war, but A, because pretty well everybody at that time was some sort of Christian, and B, there are things about Shakespeare which you can't really begin to understand without understanding something about these notions of anarchic forgiveness, free grace, whatever. And that, that line I quoted from Measure for Measure about the one who, he who would, might the, the vantage most have took found out the remedy. God, who has everything, if you like, going for him in terms of resource and leverage, is the one who solves the impasse of human horror by becoming powerless. Now, that, that's Christian. How much he believed it, what he did about it, I don't quite know. I don't think he was saying his prayers in church every Sunday. In fact, we know he wasn't. And he wasn't a very nice man in many ways, Shakespeare. It's always very shocking that, but, um, you know, the late Shakespeare hoarding grain and buying up property in Stratford. It's not terribly attractive. Um, so if he was if he was a Christian, he wasn't a saint, but you don't expect that. I have nothing to add, but he was the expert on that. Um, uh, I mean, it's impossible to tell, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I, I would be less concerned than Rowan about whether he's a Christian. Well, I mean, Rowan's not concerned whether he's a Christian or not, but uh, he obviously knew his Bible. We know that. We, knew, we know he knows Matthew's Gospel very, very well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible now to distinguish between what was culturally part of his makeup and what was he actually believed in. I mean, I, I, do, think, I, do, think the, um, I do think the end of Hamlet is quite an interesting one because if the, our, our interpretations of that are different, that I, I would say it's less grim and more humanist and lighter Thank than you. that. Thank you. Here in the front. In fact, that was my question. <laughs> but I just wanted to thank you so much for your um, insights, uh, for facilitating our learning, uh, for adding uh, dimensions to a reading of the plays. And uh, that, that was my question, basically. Do you think that even though you said you weren't going to talk about Shakespeare's religious standpoint, this is too good an opportunity to miss? <laughs> and. Um, do you think that it can be summed up in one sentence, as it were, or do you think that it's multifaceted and that uh, all of the plays contribute to a, a kind of global religious um, uh, standpoint? Uh, in fact, that they are su the, the sum of all the parts. Um, well, as you said, the, the answer to part of the question has already been uh, given. Um, I, I'm, I'm a real, um, I tread very carefully on Shakespeare biography um, because, because actually all things to say is I, I don't really care. Um, I'm fascinated by it, but in the end I'm, I always sit there thinking I don't, I, I don't, I mean, look, by the time, I remember Nick Heitner saying to me, uh, who runs National Theatre, he said, you know, by the time we're dead, we'll have proved that 
half the plays weren't written by him. <laughs> and, you know, it's already started. I mean, not started, it started 100 years ago, but we know that Middleton wrote substantial parts of the plays. We know that George Peel wrote substantial parts. We know that... And it, and it, it doesn't make any difference to me at all. Um, uh, I, I would love to think that the man that I have spent so much time worshipping from afar, uh, uh, that he was responsible for the, the best bits. But I bet, you know, I bet by the time I'm 70 that a substantial amount of his work will not be attributable to him anymore. And, uh, and so be it. And it, it, really, it really doesn't fuss me. So I, I have to say that, um, I mean, I, I would sense that if I know anything about actors, um, they probably haven't changed much over 300 years, and I bet he wasn't a churchgoer. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not. So I, 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 and as somebody once said, you, you cast Shakespeare in your own image, don't you? And I think, that's, I think we're all allowed to do that. OK, so as, <laughs> as a sort of bearded, balding... Uh, <laughs> 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 Uh, yes, and I, I certainly don't think he was, he was a devout churchgoer. I do think, though, that let's just say the world of the plays, and not only the plays, but the sonnets too, isn't a secularist world. No. It's a world in which the, the dimensions of humanity around are very deep, very, very mysterious, and do open out on something which you can only call God. Because whatever you think about his doctrinal affiliations, his sacramental practice, all the rest of it, he wrestles with human questions with intensely ambivalent, many-layered approaches to humanity and ends up saying, well, there's a great deal more to all this than some might think, and it is required you awake your faith. Mm. You know, <laughs> some trust in that mysteriousness is part of, part of what, what the plays are about. And I don't, as I say, make a, a point-scoring claim about that. You know, the greatest of English playwrights or greatest uh, consortium of English playwrights or whatever was a Christian of some sort. No, but that here is the imagination at full stretch, which seems unable to cope without something of the sacred. I wonder what he thought about Christopher Marlowe. It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? I think he loathes um, it, he? I don't know. Well, sorry, I should loathe his writing. No, um... You know, he was defined as an atheist, although, of course, even Christopher Marlowe presumably was working within... He wouldn't be what we recognise as an atheist, no. I wouldn't guess. So I wonder what he thought. I wonder whether he... I, I've got this image jealousy. of him being... Jealousy. Uh, jealousy. 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 I mean, he tries to do the Marlowian line at times, and after a decade or so, thinks, oh, stuff it, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. Hmm? We have a question in the front here. Are there any of Shakespeare's characters who you would uh, particularly identify with? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd, you know, I'd love, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to identify. I'd love to say I could identify with, with Benedict. Um, <laughs> but having just described him as the bravest man in there, um, I'm not as brave as him. Any actor who plays Hamlet, and it's completely... Uh, uh, conventional thing to say, but um, uh, I was talking to somebody who I think is in the audience, Ben Crystal, who's about to, about to play Hamlet, and um, here at the festival, and, and 
Somebody said before I did it, they said, you know, it'll change your life. I can't remember, it was, a, it was a, an actor who just done it. And you thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it does change your life. It changes your life because I think it requires an actor to stand as Simon Osabeel or Mark Rylands or Ray Fiennes or uh, Ben Crystal, you know, um, who's going to be doing it, um, to stand on stage as themselves, oddly. So it's a very weird dynamic in that play, which is that you end up... This is why I don't think it's grim. I think you stand on stage in, in, in psychologically naked and uh, you, expose, you expose yourself uh, to the audience as yourself. It's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a weird um, journey in a way that is not required, I think, of any other part. And I think that's why it's become special. Um, so if I said I'd identify with Hamlet, it's not because, and it's not because I'm brilliant like Hamlet, it's because, it's because you, rather like fashioning Shakespeare in your own image, you fashion Hamlet in your own image. Um, uh, I'd like to be as glamorous as Cleopatra, but that's another, that's, uh, <laughs> that's another world. <laughs> I cast beyond the moon and dream of things impossible, but there you go. Yes, I... I as a non-actor, at least in that sense, I, could, I couldn't easily identify. The only two Shakespearean parts I've ever played in student productions were Dogbury and Theseus. You um, draw your own conclusions from that. I can't say I, I identified much with either of them. It's not so much identifying for me as, as a reader and a, an observer as being drawn in and compelled by characters. And for me, I suppose partly the result of doing King Lear at A-level Lear just holds me as, as the figure I most constantly want to explore and think about. And in a strange way, Macbeth also. Um, not through identifying with him, which is probably good news, because you don't really want a serial killer as Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> um, but there's, there's, there's something about that about the complexity of motive, the complexity of language, the fact that the, the frozenness of Macbeth still generates image after image after image after image, which, again, I just find compelling. The only one I never had sympathy with, just to do a second answer, was Iago. Even Leontes, I thought, actually, I, he, you know, he's trying to obey the rules. He's trying to, he's trying to behave like a reasonable man. It's just that he's... He, uh, as Shakespeare writes, is diseased. Um, but uh, Iago was the only one that I felt, I felt beyond, beyond the sympathy of the person playing him. More question? I think we have time for one more. This side? At the back. Uh, you, you say um, actors haven't changed much across the centuries, and a, a lot of actors in the modern day flirt with all sorts of, um, or get involved with all sorts of religions. Um, do you think there's any evidence that Shakespeare flirted with whatever options were around then? I mean, you know, the, the witches, or identifying with um, classical religions or value systems? There was that book written about the Rosicrucian thing, wasn't there? There but usually that's, is. But that's, <laughs> but isn't, is, is Rosicrucian Christian? I think it is, isn't it? Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> Very um, sort of. 
I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to know whether he, he uh, they always say that about Macbeth, that the black magic is, is genuinely researched, as it were. Um, but I see no evidence. No, I don't see any evidence of any particular other value system being employed directly, yeah. to be honest. No, I, I, th I think that, that rather hard-headed side of Shakespeare means that he, he will look with interest. I guess that if he knew anything about the sort of hermetic magic that was around in Elizabethan times, he would have said, oh, that's fascinating, tell me a bit more. And it would have all been woven in. But that he wasn't somebody who gave his heart very easily to systems of any sort. Or I mean, solutions. as far as one can tell you, he was conservative with small c, wasn't he? What one, one guesses, when he went back to that little town in Stratford, and he was very, very interested in the divine right of kings being properly <laughs> exercised. And yet, even, even with that, he can't stop himself showing you what's wrong with it. Yeah. That, no. That's, isn't it, part, part of the part of extraordinary character of, yeah. of Shakespeare? He, he wants you to see the other side all the time. It's, he, he will talk about the divine right of kings, and he will show you exactly why it's a bad idea. Richard II, yeah, 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 yeah. and show you how it's never just an ideology, it's also about persons, about failed and failing persons, about potential disaster, about cost and loss, and all the things that human life is about. I'm also thinking about Cassius too, because mm -hmm. I, found, I found Cassius uh, extremely sympathetic in the sense that if you, so interesting with Shakespeare that you can if you get rid of your preconceptions about a part, I'm sure some of you heard me say this before, but if you get rid of them, you can actually try and start from scratch. And sometimes end up with rather interesting things. Like with Cassius, I suddenly thought, what if he, what if he, you know, he's always played as Machiavellian manipulation. Mm. I was thought, actually, what if he's, he's absolutely genuine? Mm. That there's, that there's no manipulation at all going on. It's, I mean, part of that, he's dreadful at it, I, I think. Yes. Um, yes. And he's a panicker and he, He's not a very good political um, worker, you know, um, player. Um, so suddenly becomes a rather sympathetic character. Who, uh, and it, it's interesting, he... Um, more than Brutus. Sort of oddly more than I Brutus, so. yeah. So, yeah. He also, he, he threatened suicide in every scene. I'm sure some <laughs> of you have heard me say this. Mm. This, is my, this is my discovery and I'm very proud of it because I, I, <laughs> I haven't seen any academics mention it, but he commits, he, he threatens suicide in every scene except the last one where he actually does commit suicide. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting when you have to think, well, what, what do I do with that? Um, is it a hysterical, you know, rather queenie sort of reaction to everything? Or is it genuine? Is he really, 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 really worried about Caesar? And I will kill myself if, if, if he becomes king. You know? And then suddenly the whole thing flips and it becomes a, a very sympathetic portrayal of somebody who's not willing to... Mm. to um, follow down the despotic route. So. I'm afraid our time is up now. Our rebels must end. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, we've been extraordinarily informed and certainly entertained as well. And it was nice that we ended on a question and a laugh. But please, will you just say thank you to the Archbishop of Canterbury and Simon Russell Beer.